Uh, super glad you're here today. I, I mean that. It's uh, great to see all of you. We're going to start today in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and find that passage. Right in the middle of your Old Testament, there are five poetic books. They begin with Job, then Psalms, then Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. We're going to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Today we're going to kick off a brand new series entitled Core. Core. What are the core principles of faith and Christianity? Today we're going to discern and talk about a Christian worldview versus how that differentiates or is distinct from other worldviews. I've always wondered what it might be like to be able to minister to someone who's yet to be affected by any religion anywhere in any culture around the world. Imagine if you had a completely open mind that was not clouded by other judgments you've made regarding this faith or that religion or that denomination or that experience. Imagine what kind of Christ follower you could grow using the core principles of Christianity. So that's what we want to do over the next several weeks. We're talking about important principles that grow strong followers of Jesus Christ. Now, every single person in the history of the world, that's a lot of people, and every single person all around the world, that's around 7 billion people, thinks about God. Every single one of us. Every single person, regardless of geographical location, regardless of background, regardless of family heritage, regardless of any other distinguishing environmental characteristic, every single person who's ever lived has thought or thinks about God. Now, we might think about God before we know him as some sort of impersonal force that infuses every part of the universe, a God that is unknowable because he refuses to reveal himself personally to his creation. Others might think of God as some sort of spirit of light that inhabits every person who's alive. The good we see in others, we might attribute, well, that's the light of God in them. Others might see the, the creator as a powerful God, a powerful creator who imagined and then spun the world into existence, but then backed out and withdrew from human affairs. We call that deism. Many of the founding fathers of this nation were deists. They believed that God created, the God of the Bible created the universe, but he wasn't necessarily concerned or involved in the affairs of men. Or if you're like me, if you believe in God, you know that God is a personal, spiritual being who created the universe and then remains involved in that creation. I want to show you something. The book of Ecclesiastes reads like a diary. If you can imagine an, a very wise old king, his name was Solomon, and he kept a diary for years of his life. When the time, by the time Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, he's well advanced in years. And he's looking back over his life. Now Solomon had been gifted by God himself with the gift of wisdom. The wisest person in the world, the wisest one who's ever lived, cherished that wisdom. But there were still some things that he just couldn't figure out. I encourage you, if you struggle to find meaning in this life, to spend time with Solomon in Ecclesiastes, because Solomon had more, did more, imagined more, thought more, could do more a million times over than any of us will ever achieve. Notice some of his conclusions. Look at chapter 3 and verse 9. 
What do workers gain from their toil? Now, if you've read this book, you've read that very sentence multiple times because this is a very big deal to Solomon. Solomon wants to know what is the purpose in life. Why all the toil? And when we work so hard, what do we actually gain? What does a worker gain from his toil? Why is life so toilsome and why are there so few answers? The wise king wants to know. Verse 10, I've seen the heavy burden that God has laid on the human race. I've seen it. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. That's what's so interesting about the whole idea to me. Solomon reveals in verse 11 that God has imprinted upon my conscience his very existence. God's laid a heavy burden on our backs because intuitively we know there's a God. That's why most of the world is religious. Intuitively, we know God exists, but the problem is we can't see him. We can't understand his divine timeline. He has set eternity, the plan of God, the existence of God, in our minds and hearts. We know it. We know it's there. Intuitively, we know there's a God, and yet we can't figure him out. We can't understand him. If we could see God, if we could figure him out, if we knew what he was up to, if we could clearly identify his timeline, his plan for humanity, maybe that would give us more fulfillment and less toil in our work. You see, in one way or another, every person who's ever lived has an idea about God. Solomon says that's because he's imprinted his existence on our very consciousness. Man is born with a hunger for God. We're wired to know our creator. Now, this is very important as we begin. This is one of the distinguishing marks of Christianity. Only Christianity teaches that our creator can be known personally. Islam does not teach that Allah can be known personally. Judaism does not teach that God the Father can be known personally. Hinduism worships many gods, and none of them can be known. Many gods in Eastern pantheistic philosophies, and even the New Age movement in our culture, believe that if God is out there, he needs to be appeased. You don't want to upset him, or he'll strike you down with lightning. Only Christianity, it's one of the distinguishing marks, only Christianity teaches that God can be known in a personal way. That's why, again, statistically, the world is mostly religious, because God himself, our creator, has imprinted on our DNA his existence. Here are the latest numbers. There are 2.4 billion Christians in the world. 2.4 billion out of 7 billion identify or call themselves Christian. That's Roman Catholic, that's Protestant, that's Orthodox, Anglican, and others. Incidentally, Overall, Christianity is exploding worldwide. Do you know that many people who study such things believe that the church, the Christian church in China, will outnumber and outgrow the Christian church in America in less than 10 years? Did you know that? Christianity is exploding in one of the most oppressive regions in the world, China. Christianity is declining in America. It's declining in Europe, but it's growing worldwide. 1.8 billion follow Allah and Islam, the teachings of Muhammad. Now, Islam is growing worldwide, primarily in Europe 
and North Africa. The same people who study such things estimate that France will be a Muslim nation in less than 50 years. France, imagine. The reason for this is simple. Because the average Muslim family around the world has more than six children in it. American families and French Protestant families, Catholic families, less than four. So simple math will tell you that eventually a nation like France, based upon the relation between Muslim and Christian, will be a Muslim nation. There are 1.6 billion others represented globally. Now we're talking about Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, and others. Incidentally, do you know there are only 14 million, not billion, 14 million Jews around the globe? Did you know that? Only 14 million. And get this. More of them live in America than in Israel. Only 14 million Jews worldwide. Then you have the secular and the non-religious. That's 1.1 billion. Now we're talking about agnostics or atheists, those who deny God's existence. The secular humanist, that's a term you ought to be aware of. The secular humanist is the largest group in this classification. Statistically, fewer and fewer people globally deny the existence of God. And by the way, religious groups can no longer be localized to a certain geographic location. Our world has advanced to the point travel is easy and possible to most of us that you no longer only find Buddhists in China. You no longer only find Hinduisms or Hindis in India. They're worldwide. In fact, statistically, the United States of America is the most religiously diverse nation on the planet. Now, that surprises me because when I turn on the television and I listen to the news, I hear a lot about how oppressive America is. I hear a lot about how, you know, exclusive America is, and we're welcome if we're like this, but you're not welcome if you're like that. The world knows otherwise. That's why billions and billions of people around the world long to participate in the freedoms that we enjoy in this great nation. There's a common belief, however, worldwide, that all of those religions I just mentioned are basically the same. I mean, they're not identical, but, you know, they believe the same things. They're all trying to do the same things. Aren't they basically the same? Incidentally, this particular belief is more often held by the secular humanist, the agnostic or the atheist, who doesn't even believe God exists. But as they examine the world geography of religion, they come to the conclusion that, hey, Judaism, Hinduism, Christianity, Islam, it's all basically the same. However, this comes from what we call universalism and pluralism. According to this worldview, there's a mountain somewhere and God lives at the top of it. A universalist or a pluralist believes that God lives at the top of this mountain, and while there are many ways, many roads to get to the top, you don't have to choose just one, because all the roads, though they are different, eventually lead to God. There's only one glaring problem with this viewpoint. Follow me here. All world religions cannot be true because all world religions are not the same. To stand in public and say that all world religions are basically the same is not to know world religions or never to have studied the contrasts between Islam and Christianity or Judaism and Hinduism or Buddhism 
and followers of Jesus Christ. All religions cannot be true because they're not all the same. If I say to you, two plus two equals four, and you say to me, no, two plus two equals nine, one of us is wrong because our answers are not the same. While we understand this regarding mathematics, it gets all miry and muddy and confusing when we talk about religion and the path to God. Every world religion by itself possesses exclusive truth that stands in direct competition, opposition, or conflict with other world religions. In fact, it is more logically consistent to conclude all world religions are false because of all these differences than it is to conclude all religions are basically the same. So if you're ever at a dinner party and someone talks about your faith and the idea is put out there, well, aren't all world religions the same? You need to say to that person lovingly and kindly, absolutely not. Have you ever studied world religions? They hold to truth that is in direct competition, opposition, and contradiction to one, to one another. Let me just give you a quick example. The, the state of mankind and how to achieve Reward, heaven, eternal life, or whatever you want to call it. Christianity teaches that man, that I am sinful by nature. When I sin, I'm speaking my native language. That's what Christianity teaches. Those were the words of Jesus. When I sin, I'm doing what comes naturally because I'm sinful I'm by nature. I'm wired for sin. Therefore, I cannot save myself, according to Christianity. I need a savior Salvation then comes from God and not man. Maybe you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It is by God's grace that you find salvation, that you're saved. It's a gift from God, not of works. You don't earn it. It's by faith. It comes from God. So nobody can boast about it because you didn't do it. That's what Christianity teaches. Now, compare and contrast that with Islam. Islam teaches that man is basically good by nature. Man is wired for good. Man is naturally good. It's society. It's governments. It's the evil infidels that make the world a bad place. Because Islam teaches that man is good by nature, basically, and man finds salvation through strict adherence to the rules and the laws. Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, we find a righteousness not by our own works. We find a righteousness that comes from God. Again, direct opposition and contradiction with Christianity. Move on to Hinduism. Hinduism. In Hinduism, man is seeking balance in life using karma. Karma is something that can be leveraged for our benefit. But it might take a million incarnations for you to finally get to heaven or achieve nirvana by leveraging that good karma. Now, that's just one example of hundreds of examples of different ideas, beliefs, and principles that are in contradiction with one another. Striking difference in world religions. Again, it is more logical because of the differences in religion around the world to conclude, well, then all religions are false, than it is to con conclude that all religions are the same. You see, the argument... The argument, because of our miry culture, the age of relativism in which we live, it's plunged us into this pseudo-psychological swamp where everybody gets to be right. 
This is especially true in American culture. That, I believe, is one of the big reasons Christianity is declining in American culture because we've embraced this idea of universalism, pluralism, relative truth. The conversation is less theological, it is less logical, it is less literal, and it is much more philosophical. It's much more about how you feel about what you believe. You see, it's no longer a search for truth in America on many levels. It's a search for meaning, the kind of meaning Solomon wrote about in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The problem is one of syncretism. Are you familiar with this word? Syncretism. I wasn't until a few years ago. Syncretism. The first century church faced the problem of syncretism. Paul would come in and say, salvation is found in Jesus Christ. And Paul would leave, and someone else would come in and say, but you've got to add these aspects of the law. Many times and many letters in the back of your New Testament, these letters to the churches are being written by Paul and others to combat syncretism. Let me explain what syncretism is. Syncretism is the blending of truth as the believer sees it. In other words, let's just pull this idea from Christianity because I like the way that sounds. And let's pull this idea from Islam because, boy, that seems to do some good in the world. And let's pull this idea from Judaism and that idea from Hinduism and this idea from Buddhism. And the line goes on. And I'll create my own self-sovereign truth by which I live and govern my life. What is the result of syncretism? A custom world-made view or a custom-made worldview that invariably leads away from truth and away from logic. I'm going to give you, in the time I have left, three statements of Christianity. The reason I possess a Christian worldview is because I know that all religions are not the same, and upon investigation, Jesus Christ and his followers make some pretty astounding statements regarding Jesus himself. I'm going to give you three of them today. The first one, important distinction of Christianity, is that Jesus Christ claimed to be God. Jesus Christ claimed to be God. Mohammed never claimed to be Allah. The father of Judaism, Abraham, or Moses, the lawgiver in Judaism, he never claimed to be God. Only Christianity's messenger, only Christianity's author, claimed to be God in the flesh. I want you to turn now to John, John's gospel, and the very first chapter. There are four biographies of Jesus that begin your New Testament. The fourth one is John. Go to John chapter 1 and look at verse 1. John writes, in the beginning was the word, capital W, logos, logos. That's the Greek word, logos. Logos means truth. It means principle. It means logic. In the beginning was the truth, the message, the principle, the logic of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So, in our beginning, the beginning of our universe, the Word, whatever the Word is, the Word already existed. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and notice, the Word was God. The Logos was God. You know what John's doing here? He's starting out his biography of Jesus by pulling from the Old Testament the concepts of God in the Old Testament Jewish mind, 
the respect for the Logos, the truth, the word of God in the Jewish mind, and he's now applying them to Jesus Christ. He was with God in the beginning, verse 3. Through him all things were made. Now we know that God the Father was not the creator, but the Logos was the creator. Notice, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Notice the personal pronouns, he, him. In him was life. Now the reader understands that the Logos is actually a person, someone we can relate to. Skip down to verse 14. The Logos, the Word, became flesh. That means the mind of God, the truth of God. God himself clothed himself in a human body. So when you stood and looked at Jesus, there was nothing abnormal about his appearance. He wasn't 10 feet tall. He didn't have a light glowing around his head. You could have easily overlooked him in a crowd. He looked like any other five foot four Jewish man, most likely. Very dark hair, dark skin, dark eyes. He looked like a million other Jews in the area. But John says, in that normal, average looking human man, human form, was the Logos, the Word, the truth, the principle of God Himself. That man actually existed in the very beginning. Interesting. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John writes, we have seen it. We have seen the glory of the Logos. We've seen the miracles. I was there. I couldn't believe my eyes. So what Solomon is grumbling about in Ecclesiastes 3, gee, if we could just see God, maybe life would be less toilsome. If we could just understand God's plan, if we could get a glimpse of what God is doing, maybe our lives would make more sense. We'd be more fulfilled. John says, now that I've seen Jesus, I've seen it. We get it. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The first distinction is that Jesus Christ claimed to be God. He was not a prophet. He was not a representative. He was indeed the creator So, follow me. The incarnation of Jesus, where God becomes man, the incarnation of Jesus is part of that special revelation of the Creator. Let me talk for a moment about general and special revelation. The Bible speaks of general revelation. We talked about it last week from Romans chapter 1. According to Scripture, general revelation is all revelation from God as He reveals Himself apart from the Bible and the life of Jesus Christ. You've got three primary categories. Nature, the intricacy of our universe, the plan, the design, the magnitude, the scope of creation ought lead men and women to the belief that there is a God. That is called general revelation through nature. There's providence. You know, when we look back and we say, wow, I'm so glad that worked out the way it did. I tried to change it when I was there, but I couldn't fix it. I had a problem and I couldn't turn it over, but somehow someone or something changed or altered my circumstance, and I'm so glad that happened. That's called providence. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 speaks of God's providence. And then there's conscience. This is what Solomon wrote to or alluded to in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. Men are naturally inclined to believe in the supernatural. 
Humanity has a a, a moral nature. We can violate our own conscience. Do you realize that anywhere around the world, regardless of your culture, regardless of how primitive or advanced it is, every human being can violate their conscience? That is general revelation as to the existence of God. Then you have special revelation. Special revelation is the Bible and the life of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that without this book, we may believe God exists, but we wouldn't know what he was like. If we didn't have this book, we may believe there's a creator out there, but we wouldn't know anything about him. We wouldn't know what he expects. We wouldn't understand if he's asking anything of us or not. It would all be completely subjective. The inspired word of God is part of God's special revelation to humanity and also the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, the life, the historical life and existence of Jesus Christ has been the most investigated, most scrutinized, most dissected, most studied life in the history of life, in the history of mankind. Jesus Christ is part of that special revelation. The Bible, we read it a moment ago, calls Jesus the Logos of God, the Word, the truth of God. Not only in John chapter 1, but you can read the same thing in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 13. And that reveals a very close connection, at least in the mind of the Father, between the written Word, which is the Bible, and the living Word, which was Jesus. That's so important to get. Jesus has fully revealed to us what God is like. You see, that's why John says, I've seen it. I've witnessed the glory of God the Father. Why? Because I've been with the Word. I've been with Jesus from Nazareth. Now, I want you to turn back in your Bible, go through Romans and 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, go to Colossians chapter 1 and look at verse 15. Colossians 1, verse 15. Here's the second distinguishing mark, critical claim of Christianity, which separates it from all other world religions, and that is Jesus Christ is preeminent. Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is above all. Look at verse 15 of Colossians 1. Paul writes, the Son, obviously we're talking about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Now, put Solomon's concerns together with John's remarks, and now reflect upon what Paul just said. The invisible God that we all wish we could meet, we all wish we could just see him. I wish he'd appear in my living room to answer some of my questions. Maybe my life wouldn't be quite so toilsome if I could see and understand God's plan and his design for time. John says, I witnessed it. Paul then points back and says, the Son is the image. You want to know what God looks like who is invisible? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God thinks and how he acts and how he responds and how he loves? Look at Jesus. The firstborn over all creation, verse 16. For in him all things were created. Now we know Jesus for sure, according to John and Paul, was the creator. Whether are things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Paul is saying that everything you can see in this world and everything you can't see in this world, everything you understand in this world, everything you can grasp in this world, and everything that is beyond your comprehension, 
He's saying that Jesus is over it all. Jesus, that five foot four little Jewish man, unimposing, normal looking, but because he was God in the flesh, is over all things. Let's finish it up. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Muhammad called Jesus a prophet and not really a good one. Paul calls Jesus God with skin on. The faiths are not the same. You see, rather than conceding the idea that, well, Jesus is one of many gods, he's a good God among many gods, Paul establishes him as God alone. He is preeminent, the preeminent Lord of the universe. He's the creator of all things, according to Paul. So Jesus Christ, if he's what we call the founder, the author of Christianity, the spokesperson of Christianity, he cannot be compared to Abraham or Moses, the spokesperson of Judaism. He certainly cannot be compared to Muhammad, the prophet or spokesperson to Islam, because there is no comparison. They did not claim to be God. Jesus did. Here's the third incredible distinction. Jesus Christ is sufficient. He's all you need. You don't have to do anything else. It's not in you anyway to accomplish much more. Turn one page over to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. Colossians 2 verse 6, Paul writes, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. i got to stop here. Paul is describing authentic faith. You see, to Paul, the apostle, belief and behavior were the same thing. If you say you believe, but there's really not much behavior that reflects that faith, I wouldn't call that faith authentic. Neither would James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. James said, if your faith doesn't have any behavior to go along with it, it's dead faith. And dead faith has never saved anybody. That's what Paul's getting at. It's deeper than simple belief. It's authentic faith. Faith that affects and influences my behavior. Live your lives in him, verse 7, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Do you know what that means? Paul is calling every other world religious system that does not embrace Christ as Logos, God, Creator, and Lord, hollow and deceptive. Hollow and deceptive. It's built upon human tradition. You know what I love about this book? And I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. You know how many people wrote this book? Forty people. Forty authors over a period of 1,600 years. Forty people who never met one another, for the most part, didn't know one another. They didn't go away for a long weekend conference in the mountains and come up with this. 1,600 years, 40 authors. Some of them were kings. Some of them were priests. Some of them were shepherds and fishermen, barely got by. Some of them were politicians and government officials. There's a doctor thrown in the mix, a tax collector. 40 authors. 1,600 years, two major languages, three actually, but primarily two, Hebrew and Greek, covering three continents, and yet as you read it from cover to cover, there is a unity 
There is the thread of consistency. We are not relying. My faith is not built on one man's supposed revelation, i.e. Muhammad, i.e. Joseph Smith. My faith is built upon 1,600 years, at least 40 different authors, and the evidence that is supported by all of it. Jesus Christ is sufficient. Keep reading. Let me find my place. Verse 8, yes, human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In Christ you've got God is what Paul is saying. And in Christ you have been brought to the fullness. So wait a minute. Paul is saying that in this five foot four, unimposing, simple, common looking Jewish man exists all the fullness of God. And when my faith is authentic in Christ as Lord and King, that fullness is available to me as well. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. In the Old Testament, God wanted his people to be circumcised, beginning with Abraham and his son Isaac, to separate them, to set them apart from other pagan cultures that did not practice circumcision. It was not simply a medical procedure. It was a procedure of sanctification. It set God's people apart from the other pagans who did not embrace the one true God. What Paul is saying is when I do embrace authentic faith in Jesus Christ, I'm set apart. I'm set apart in the same way. Not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. That's what baptism signifies. I'm dying to myself because I believe Jesus died for my sin. And I'm raised to live a different life. My behavior is changing because Jesus rose from the dead. He also raised, and you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, I've got to quit. Time's up. Let me simply say this. In our day and culture of moral and philosophical relativism, you know, if that works for you, you go ahead and believe it. That's your truth. I'll have mine. People tend to make Christianity the same. What I wanted you to see today is that Christianity is not the same. It's distinct. It's different. Christianity is the most inclusive faith in the world because we don't save ourselves. God provided a Savior. All of the claims of Jesus that we've talked about today, his deity, that he was God, his preeminence, and his sufficiency, those have profound implications. If they are true, they've got to affect my behavior. Again, that may not be popular in a position today, the world of syncretism and relative truth, but anyone who holds to this belief can expect to be criticized from time to time because many assume that religion is purely a personal and subjective decision. It's all about what works for you, dude. Hang loose, and I'll see you on the other side. But that's not what Christianity claims of itself. You see, and don't miss this, and I'll quit. Unlike Islam, unlike Judaism, unlike Hinduism, Buddhism, the pantheistic religions, the New Age movement, Christianity can be measured and tested. Some of you are kind of hard copy people like I am. 
We're going to provide this information on our website. It'll be linked to the message if you want to see it in the coming days. But for some of you who won't go to the website, I provided hard copies out there in the lobby. If you want to pick one up and examine it, I'd encourage you to do it. I'd like you to compare the messenger of Christianity, Jesus Christ, with the messenger of Judaism, which was Moses and Abraham and maybe David, and the message of Islam, which was Muhammad. You will, by comparing the leaders alone, you will recognize the distinct differences between the three. Jesus claimed that he was indeed God. Paul and the other authors of the New Testament said that as God, he is preeminent over all others. And thankfully, he is sufficient. He's all I need. Let's pray. Father, I pray this encourages folks. I, I pray we recognize that there is logic and truth. There is, there is a systematic way of looking at what we simply say we believe. God, I pray our belief would go deeper than, than superficial uh, acquiescence that you exist. I pray that it would impact our lives and how we live them. Make our faith authentic as we attempt to follow your son, Jesus Christ, who is indeed the authority for truth. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you make it a great week. I will see you next time.